Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, my name is Ashley, a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today with KX Sang. She is a diaspora writer with roots in Hong Kong and Shanghai, and she joins us to talk about her debut novel, An Echo in the City. KX, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's so great to be here. My first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism? That's a great question, and I definitely think this intersects with my idea of like inclusion too. Feminism for me means being able to lift up other women as we all rise together. And definitely for me specifically, lifting up other Asian women as well. So whenever I'm given any position of power, for example, with getting to publish this book, I look to create other opportunities to also help other Asian women reach these positions as well. Wonderful. And what is An Echo in the City about? Echo in the City takes place in 2019 in Hong Kong. And it's a dual point of view novel. It follows Phoenix, who's a high school student and student protester, and Tai, who recently immigrated from mainland China from Shanghai. And he's currently a police officer in training. And so the two meet accidentally at a restaurant and swap phones. But that's when Tai realizes that Phoenix might be his way in into spying on the protest movement. And so he attempts to infiltrate the student protest groups by befriending her. But of course, nothing goes as planned. And so shenanigans then ensue. One thing that I noticed about the book was, of course, the idea of home. There's Suki, who is Phoenix's brother's girlfriend. She talks about her uncle possibly having to leave the country and this idea of him dying on foreign land. And also Phoenix wanting to leave home to go to, or being expected to leave home to attend college. So it's leaving home for potential new experiences, but also the fear of dying on foreign land. So what is important when writing about home? That's a really great question, Ashley. I think that those are touching on two different sides to the same coin. So the point about Tsuki's uncle dying on foreign land, it touches on a Chinese idiom, which is that, you know, falling leaves return to their roots, right? And so for Chinese people, there's a really strong idea of you need to be buried where your family came from. And so actually, like, you know, hundreds of years ago, there used to be these professional mourners who would carry the body back thousands of miles across China just to have that body buried wherever, you know, the body came from. And so people would pay gold coins to have this done. It was extremely important to Chinese people. For Suki's uncle, he doesn't have that choice, right? He needs to leave. And so for him, it's like a part of him is getting taken from him forcibly because he's not able to stay in the place that he loves. Meanwhile, for Phoenix's side, Phoenix actually, and her parents definitely want her to leave. And that's because in today's day and age, even though, you know, Hong Kong is definitely an economic hub, there's a lot more opportunity outside of Hong Kong. If you are getting a degree in America or, you know, somewhere in the West, and then you come back to Hong Kong, you were often given a job that has twice the paying salary as people who graduated from a Hong Kong university. And so pragmatically speaking, in today's day and age, actually a lot of people, they encourage their children to leave Hong Kong to get their education elsewhere. 
And then they kind of say, come back, but also you don't need to come back. And so for Phoenix to choose to not leave is a very, how should I say, a unique decision amongst her peers. And what she's doing in that instance is, and maybe I'm saying a bit too much about the book's okay. plot, but she's choosing to value what she believes in over her financial or economic future and putting one over the other. It's amazing how Phoenix advocates for herself as she's understanding her place of home because for a top, for a good point of time, she was also in Cary, North Carolina, which could not be more <laughs> further than Hong Kong. So she's had a taste of the United States and being a legacy student, a potential legacy student as her parents want her to be to attend Yale University. But her advocacy and how she stands up for herself in her idea of home becomes really prevalent in the story. Exactly. I'm very impressed by how thoughtful your reading was. Yes. And I want to know, how did you create a parallel between Phoenix and Kai, yet make them as individuals, their own people? Yeah, I'm curious to hear your take on this too, because I was looking at the reading questions for at the back of the book. And one of the questions that my publishing team had come up with is that Kai and Phoenix are so different, yet they're drawn to each other. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, are Kai and Phoenix actually that different? Because personality-wise, definitely they're foils of each other. Kai is, you know, brooding, moody, doubts himself a lot, insecure. Phoenix is overly confident, some might say, a bit brash, impulsive, all of those adjectives. So I would say definitely on the outside, they're, the way they present themselves to the world is very separate. But I think internally, a lot of their doubts and struggles are similar to each other. And that's because I was trying to explore the same question through both of them, which is when we're t- constantly told that we're the other and that we don't belong here, then where do we choose to belong? Who do we choose to belong with? And how do we have agency in where the places that we do can call home? So with Phoenix, she is, you know, born in Hong Kong. So is Kai, but they, in the early periods of their life, they left Hong Kong and they moved elsewhere to a place that othered them, that gave them this feeling of, oh, I'm, you know, stuck in this liminal space. I'm not here. No, I'm not there. You know, where do I fit in? And so both of them are wrestling with that question at the start of the novel. And hopefully by the end of the novel, they have some sort of semblance of an answer to that question. Definitely with familial backgrounds, they, they are different, but they are more alike than they are different. And I think that's what attracts them together and also pulls them away from each other because, especially for Phoenix, because her being a middle child and her not having too many friends, finding someone who she can connect with kind of feels scary to her, but it also opens her up to new possibilities. Exactly. I'm curious, did you connect more with one or the other? I didn't, but I think watching Kai through Phoenix, because she, as you said, she's very confident and Kai is very brooding. So Phoenix giving Kai the confidence, especially with his art, is interesting to watch Phoenix through Kai. So I really enjoyed watching Kai through Phoenix's point of view. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And the way that she sees him is imbued with love. And so he has, she has a more gracious perspective than he does. It's funny. People often ask me, Oh, do you relate to Phoenix or did you write Phoenix based on yourself? Mm-hmm. So Kai was the point of view that was easier to write for me that came very naturally. 
versus repeating. So I was like, what would this girl do? Because I definitely would not do that. So as I mentioned, Phoenix is a middle child. Her parents want her to attend Yale University, which of course is a, a prestigious university. She would be a legacy kid. And there's also the term nepotism. How did you develop these attributes for Phoenix and her family? And why was it important to talk about her being a legacy student, a legacy and familial expectations? That's another great question. So there's something that I also wanted to unpack here, which is the idea of privilege and how that varies across different spectrums. And it definitely varies between Phoenix and Kai, as you see. Phoenix is surprisingly, and I can't say too much here for privacy reasons, but she's actually based on someone that I know in real life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there are a lot of people who are not a lot, but there are some people who are in Phoenix's shoes where they come to Hong Kong, their parents are extremely wealthy, they go to an international school, and then they're expected to immediately leave and go to the States. And oftentimes they are legacy students at these huge Ivy Leagues or Stanford, very reputable schools. So for Phoenix, because her circumstances were so different from Kai's, the juxtaposition allowed me to play with a lot of different themes there. So one of them being privilege. And there's many ways in which she doesn't understand Kai's perspective. And she actively tries, but in her attempts to understand him, she actually hurts him more. There's that scene where she gives him the gift and she doesn't understand how this is such an insult to give it to him. And I've definitely seen examples of that, you know, well-intentioned, well-meaning charity. And I wanted to show how, even though in many ways in the book, Phoenix is a victim, she's also not a victim in other ways. And that's all of us in all our lives, right? All of us are villains in some ways and victims in others. And we have to learn how to play with that power imbalance and how to try to weed it for good. Yes. And in mentioning privilege, which Phoenix has to understand that she has, and Kai definitely helps her understand that privilege. I just wanted just to just say something about the Telegram app. Uh, in the story, it ties the identity of students so that the dogs, quote unquote, can't track you, that being any form of authority. I just thought that was an interesting way to add some present day technology to the story. Yeah, so I can't take credit for that. It is a real app that exists that uh-huh. the protesters use in order to keep their identity secret. And actually what I love too is that a lot of the tactics and strategies that the Hong Kong protesters used, they shared with U.S. protesters. And so yeah. a lot of U.S. protesters also started using Telegram. Okay. Well, so it's really awesome to hear how people are just helping each other across the globe. Yes. And what did you want to focus on when writing about the democracy protests in Hong Kong? And what does freedom mean to the protesters? Yeah, so I definitely did not want to give a definitive answer here. I don't think that there is a definitive answer. It doesn't exist. I wanted to share a more nuanced perspective than what was being offered in the media, where in the Chinese media, because my family is also from mainland China, um, you saw a very one-dimensional protesters are rioters, they're terrorists. That was the perspective offered by the media. Then in the U.S., they offered a you know more positive perspective on the protesters, but often it was done without nuance in a way where I felt like the protesters were figureheads. It was like, look at them. They're so brave. They're sacrificing all that they, their future and they don't care. And it's like, no, these are real humans. Like they're really scared. And oftentimes they don't know if they're making the right decision. And who knows if they are making the right decision, right? But what's important is that they're choosing to stand up for what they believe in. And so I wanted to show as many perspectives as possible and not just with the kids, but also with the parents. 
with the people on the fringes of the movement who don't understand why are you doing this? Because that's also a valid opinion too. And I wanted to showcase what it meant to the protesters in 2019 was having the ability to say what they wanted to say and to be able to stand up for the political issues that they believed in. At the time with the extradition bill, it meant that anyone who was tried could be extradited to mainland China to have their trial there. And so that was very limiting in terms of, you know, their freedom, right? Because you don't know how the trial is going to work in mainland China, you know, how the judge is going to make their decision and how they're going to be sentenced. And so they were asking to not be extradited to mainland China. At the same time, five demands came out of the extradition or out of the protests. And those were all around having more political freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to protest, freedom to also, you know, protest and then not be jailed for that protest. Yes. And how was writing for the young adult audience? And what do you want your reader or a reader to gain from this book? Yeah. So I definitely wanted to make this a young adult book because so many of its themes felt so pertinent to the young adult audience. Coming of age is so difficult in today's time and age because the world tells you to grow up right away and become an adult right away. Like these are choices that I feel like young adults should not need to be making as young as they are. And yet the world is forcing them to. And so that's why I wanted to make it for young adults. I think what I hope readers will come away from this book with is a sense of having the freedom and agency to choose where do I call home? And you get the right to choose that home, no matter what other people tell you. And I, I hope it especially speaks to diaspora kids who are often othered because of the way they look or, you know, their cultural references and the way that they feel most at home at places where they might not look the same way as the people there. I hope that they can get a sense of in the same way that, you know, Kai and Phoenix were able to struggle through these meaty issues and then come to their own conclusions. You know, I too, that way I can read this book feel seen, resonate with their struggles, and in the same way, have more agency to decide this is where I want to go home. Where would you like our audience to buy an Echo in the City from? Oh, that's a really great question. I have a pre-order campaign running actually at Books Inc. Palo Alto and Kepler's Books in Menlo Park, California. So if you buy, if you pre-order the book from either of those two bookstores, my indie bookstores, they're my local bookstores, then you get a art print with it of like a beautiful Hong Kong street scene or a picture of Phoenix and Thai. So would love for you to pre-order there, but you can also pre-order wherever books are sold. And I just want to say as a fan of titles and Echo in the City is a beautiful name for a book. Just oh, so says much. so much about the story as it is before you even read a word of it. Have you, do you know BTS? Yes. So actually, there's a line in one of their lyrics that says, like an echo in the forest. Ah, yes. The inspiration for an echo in the city. Love it. I love it. Hey, Song, thank you for joining us to talk about an echo in the city. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everyone. I'm Renee. Today, I am joined by two of our contributors. We're talking about Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it to you all. Jordi, introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. I'm Jordy. Excited to be here. I'm Sally. I'm excitement. Maybe it's not the right word, but mm-hmm. riled up, maybe. <laughs> and I think that if you have read Chain Gang All-Stars, continue listening. You understand our kind of hesitation to say 
to like get really hyped about this book. If you have not read Chain Gang All-Stars yet, we are going to spoil it. So come back, you know, bookmark this. Come back to this conversation after you have read it. I think it's not an exaggeration to say this is one of my favorite books of the year. It might be my favorite book of the year, but it's not a fun book. And so without further ado, we are talking about abolition fiction today. It's criminal action, penal entertainment. We have gamified and turn prisoners into entertainment a la gladiator-inspired fights. And the whole thing is a reality television show. It is Big Brother meets the NFL meets the prison system. And it's set, I would say, an hour into the future. And it is heartbreaking, dystopian, fantastic, and everything I want in abolition fiction. Those are my initial thoughts. Sally, why don't you take us from there? Yeah, I I loved... It doesn't have to be a happy book for me to love what's happening, like what my experience of reading it and like the writing and all those things. And I loved all of those things. Every second of this was really good. I agree. Yeah, and I'll kind of echo what Sally said. This isn't a genre or type of book that I usually gravitate toward, but it is just written so well. And my mind is blown that this is the author's debut novel to even begin with that. There was just so much happening in this throughout, I feel like, every single chapter that while I was reading it, it got a little bit overwhelming. And I feel like all of my thoughts just kind of jumbled together while I was reading it. But I think one of the most alarming aspects of this story is that on initial reading, you may think that everything may seem kind of far-fetched or that it can never happen. But so much of it is already happening and there has been systems already in place like this that have happened. And I think one of the brilliant things that the author does is he puts in these footnotes of, oh yeah, here's an example of where that happened just like three years ago. It is so well done. These footnotes are just like little nuggets of truth that, I mean, he's just taking our current carceral system to the logical conclusion. And that is so fucked. And it just shows that the system that we have now is failing us. And here's the direction we're going. This is late stage capitalism. This is, you know, this is the pro sports, pro violence air that we breathe. And so like, that's, yeah, Jordy, you're absolutely right. This is not far from the truth. It is. And if we continue, if we do not have prison abolition, this is what we're going to end up with. And it is terrifying. And I think even just the part of the story where this is almost like reality television, it got me thinking because some of my guilty pleasures are reality TV. And it made me think about how, you know, so much has come out about people who are on reality television and the mental health concerns and things of that nature. Yeah, I... So I one of the reality shows that I watch is Big Brother, longtime fan. There have been cer- certain contestants over time who like we've learned that they were like going through withdrawal while they while they were like in the house or just like having panic attacks all the time while they were in the house or whatever it was. And Big Brother is like one of the shows where they do have 
like psychologists on hand. While I was reading, I kind of forgot that that was even an aspect of the book because I was so focused on the prison system of it all. You know, there's one way to get me engaged in the story is to make it about abolition. But like, yeah, like just even thinking about that, that's also the next logical development of reality TV. It's like going where we haven't been before, you know, exploiting people we haven't exploited before, seeing how far we can go. A couple of the Love is Blind people have filed lawsuits against the production company of that show and like have gone on record as like just severe like mental issues that they had while filming and since filming. And so I could even see like producers being like, okay, so we won't deal with these kinds of people then anymore. Like, well, let's leave these populations alone. Well, here's the prison system. It's an entire system where like people, they don't, they already don't have rights or minimal rights. Like we can exploit them. They already are exploited for their labor. We could just give them a different kind of labor and just do it this way. So even from that angle of it, it's like, yeah, this is not far-fetched at all. And I did want to touch on the footnotes because they were really grounding. I think like after every footnote, I just kind of like paused and like took it in. And like some of it was stuff that I already knew, but it didn't really matter. It was just like, right, like within the context of the story and reality, like I'm just going to take a minute to like breathe these in and like think about what's being shared here. Same. And I will say the audiobook cast is fantastic. I want to also expand on on this conversation about reality TV, and I want to expand it to just include celebrity. And I think that's what Ajay Brenya is also speaking to is this cult of celebrity and this dehumanization of celebrity. Because this is a, a reality program, it is a professional sports program. These people are no longer these, these, you know, participants in the battle royale. They have fans, which is so fucked to me, right? And these fans like go hard for them and these fans mourn when they die, but they're not mourning a human. They're mourning a contestant and a celebrity. And the fact that in the character Mari, she's a, she's an abolitionist. She's a protester. She's the daughter of one of the, one of the participants on the chain gang. One of the links. That's what they call them. A link on the, on the chain. She's kind of our stand in for witnessing this like cult of celebrity and this dehumanization and through her we try to the author tries to just reiterate and hammer home the fact that these are people and they have they deserve dignity and they have rights even though all of these rights like you said sally they're being exploited but if we continue to dehumanize criminals it will make it so much easier to not care that they're in this like horrible, horrible system. And so I really appreciated Mari's perspective in in bringing just the actual humanity to the public about these characters. Like, author is brilliant in the fact that, like, is forcing us to empathize with criminals, which I don't think a lot of people are forced to do in their lives. But Mari, in particular, is bringing it to the, the rest of the, like, society in this book like the villains of this story not like saying anything that's too wild but here like no i'm pretty sure that these people would be having these conversations in this way the villains are not the ones with the weapons the villains are the ones pulling the puppet strings at the top and these are the men the white men who are already the owners of private prisons i'm sure these conversations are being had already 
I just found it really interesting how we get a lot of different perspectives in this book. Some of them are super fleeting because it's like one conversation that one random person had. We're kind of like in on because of whoever we're following in that moment. There's a scene where like it's just like people, there's like a, a guy in college who's like talking about like his, his classmates' reactions and like how he doesn't fit in because he doesn't watch the show. And I was like, man, like these people, I, yeah, when they're like, but they, you know, they're rapists, they're murderers, da 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 da. Like, yeah, all the ways that we like justify treating prisoners like crap because of whatever they've done. Like that all happened in the beginning. And then the execs right before the final scene that we're in and just like them being like, I mean, we didn't, we haven't done anything here. Like all, like all that we're doing is just facilitating something for like entertainment. But like, this is, this is what they want. Like this is, there's nothing wrong. And it was just like such an interesting way to experience those two scenes. Cause it does feel like, yeah, like this is how people would take this in and treat this. Yeah, I also think kind of going back to Mari trying to humanize this whole thing, I think while reading stuff like this, people could tend to think like, oh, this will never happen, or it's so far away, or I would never support something like this. And I think it's important to remember that something like this doesn't just happen overnight. It's something that's slow and gradual, so you kind of get used to the idea and desensitized by everything. And For me, this was kind of highlighted by one of the stories in the book. And I think it was just there briefly between two people in a relationship. And one of them was very into this whole thing and wanted his partner to get on board with it. And it was making her watch all of these fights and stuff. And she was kind of sitting there like, how could you be interested in watching this? Like, people are dying. But you kind of slowly see her getting on board with it just because he was on board with it. And so I think in that moment, you can kind of see how people who were once opposed could slowly get used to this idea. That's what makes this the Chain Gang All-Stars so brilliant, right? Is that it's got the it's got the drama. It's got the romance. Like we have a love story between two of the contestants. It has violence. It has high stakes. It has drama. It has blood. Like it's got something for everybody. And that is terrifying. And Jordy, to your point, like we have prison labor already. So I think we are already starting to get used to this world that this book is set in. Yeah. And I mean, there's already reality television series that follow people in prison. That's horrifying. I hate this world. (laughs) Okay. We've talked about kind of the social justice aspects. We've talked about the abolition aspects of it. I want to know about the craft aspects. And Jordy, you mentioned like this was the author's first his debut novel, but it's not his first book. He does have a collection of short stories called Black Friday, which I have not read, but everything I've read about it says it's absolutely excellent. I'm curious what you think about the beginning and ending. And I I bring up the fact that he's a short story writer first, because a lot of times this did feel like connected short stories, which I personally love, the multiple POV, multiple perspectives. I love it. So I'm curious your thoughts on the craft of the book itself. This is not something that I often think about when I'm reading, but it was hard to ignore here, like how well-written book was. Like I just, because of how engaging it is, because of how things are set up, if we're talking about the beginning and the ending specifically, like from the beginning, like the first chapter, (laughs) it's like 
these people are people. And like, it grounds that so clearly and like quickly, like these people, like, cause it, you know, it alludes to like how only they can hear each other, their war and don't remember the colossal that she, Melancholia Bishop, which I think is (laughs) one of the best character names I've ever read. Melancholia Bishop here for her. Yeah. So in that scene, like Bishop is like communicating to Thurwall, but like is communicating without like in the moments where the camera is not catching them. And so that's how Thurwall knows that like she's saying this like for her, not for the show of it all. And so I thought it was like such a great way to humanize them from the start while also showing like the world that we're in, like, okay, yeah, like it's a world where like Big Brother, where like anything that you say can be recorded, like people can see it, like it's there, it's part of the record. And then, of course, like the thing that she's telling her in the beginning is to swing through because she's like, I'm willing to die. Like, this is what I'm, I'm here for. It. Like, it's fine. Let's do this. I don't need like and we see this throughout the book, like their freedom. They don't care about buying their freedom Like <laughs> at, at the end of the day. They don't care about buying their freedom. Their freedom is like debt. De- they're like, this is what I, this is what I need. By the time that I got to the end the first time around, like I had kind of forgotten that, you know, I've been forgetting things. So I had kind of forgotten that beginning. I knew that like there was some sort of tie in between the two. And that's why I ended up reading the beginning and the end again. But like while I was reading it, I, you know, I had already lifted from my mind. But yeah, it just like does such a great job of like having those echoes ending again with that, like that notion of like, well, what is freedom? And what is freedom in this world? And so, like, what is freedom in our world? I also love, like, multiple POVs. I love the feeling of, like, we're getting sh- short stories throughout and they're all connected in some way. I love that. But, yeah, but, like, this is just, like, so well written. I'm just obsessed. Yeah, I'll, I have to say, this is probably the book that I read that contained the most POVs. Like, we were getting perspectives from the links in the chain. We were getting perspectives from so-called sands from the people running everything from protesters like you name it it was in there and i think that helps with showing the nuance of everything because i think a, a point was made in the story where people like to think of things in black and white like oh well you know they're here because they did these things and we're not doing anything but while you're reading their stories it's like no we're kind of like all the same here and like we all make mistakes. We all do things. But yeah, that multiple POV. And I love when authors title their chapters. I'm obsessed with it. And so I loved reading all of the different chapter titles and trying to guess what was going to happen just by the title. But yeah, from the jump, like the very first scene, everything that we're introduced to, I was like, well, this is going to be brutal. This is going to be tough. I'm kind of queasy. And some of those scenes were very gruesome. But it made me think from the beginning, okay, how is this going to end? Like, is Thurwar going to have to do something like this or is something different going to happen? And I think it's not, fun may not be the right word for this, but it's like, I like to try to guess what's going to happen. And I didn't see the ending coming. Let's dig into the ending. Yes. What? How did you interpret it? After reading it the first time, I was just very sad. I didn't want it to end like that. I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to wanting a happy ending. And that's exactly what I wanted. And after reading the ending, I was like, I know it couldn't have been a happy ending because that just would have, I think, devalued the whole story and everything that was this book. 
So there, it had to end sad, brutal, all of the things. But I just wasn't expecting it to end the way that it did with the sacrifice that was made. When Stax took the final blow, I was like, wow, I definitely thought it was going to be the other way around. I did not see that coming. I have not taken in any media about this book. So like, I don't know if this is supposed to be open to interpretation or not. I don't know if, you know, how ambiguous it's supposed to be or does it just feel ambiguous? The first time that I finished, I was like, oh, yeah, it has similar to Tate, Jordy. I really thought Thor War was going to be the one who died at the end and that Stax was somehow going to live. And it is written that way, kind of, right? When I first listened to it, I thought they meant Stax and Stax, Stax's weapon because it says that their war is like looking around or whatever, like standing and looking around. So I was like, okay, so their war is alive. But then I was like, but why? But that doesn't mean that there was alive. They were both like they both had released their weapons at around the same time. And we know that one of them hit a, de- a death blow. And we know that the other one hit, but we just don't know if it was a death blow. So now I'm like, did they both die? Did they not both die? And it's sad either way. But it do I do think that I like it better if they both die. The thing that it says is like they're both free. That's when I was like, is it the weapon and stacks that are free or is it stacks and their war that are free i definitely think it is intentionally ambiguous and i while i appreciate a happy ending or at least a all the bows are tied maybe not prettily but all of the all the strings you find the ends of by the end as much as i appreciate that i love a messy ending after i read it i just i just go what i out loud like what happened and i don't need to know what happened to appreciate it and in my head i just think this book is so cinematically written and if this doesn't get picked up for i don't know if i want it god that's like capital capitalism plus commercialization i don't know if i want it picked up as a as a film or tv series but it is written so well that it feels like it is that it feels real it feels the world building brilliant it's so well done it's so cinematic but I say it's cinematic because at the end, in my head, I had this picture in my head. Come on in. Let me bring you into my brain. It was like weapons went up, freeze frame, blackout. Like that is how I see the end and makes it open for interpretation. I'm a sucker for like a Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid ending. And that's how I feel like it was like a a Thelma and Louise ending. Like that's just that's how I interpreted it. But I don't think there's a right or wrong way to interpret that ending. Yeah, I also love an open ending. And then the second time that I read it, I re-listened to that ch- last chapter multiple times again. But yeah, but it doesn't really matter like what happened, right? Like what matters is like how I felt at the end, which was the same regardless, right? Like I felt really connected to these characters, which doesn't often happen. But by the end, like they're lovers, like they have a complicated history with each other and with the chain gang and in general. And I'm just like, I do want them both to be free, whatever freedom means to them. Yeah, like right after reading the last sentence and flipping the page and there was nothing left, I was kind of like, what? Wait a second, what just happened? That was so quick. That was so quick. And it's like, you close the book, you look up, you're brought back to reality. And it's like, it's kind of like the story isn't over because you can see so many similarities to our actual reality where it's like, we don't know the ending. And like, we do have to do things. And so it's like now on us to do those things. Yeah, for sure. I think too, like the stunned silence of the crowd 
regardless of like what actually happened on the battleground is the thing that I was left with the most. And to me, like in my hopeful moments that I'm like, great. And now there's reform. That's what happens after the book ends. The stunned crowd joins up the abolition movement and they're like, screw this. And everything is great. In my mind, that's how it it ends. I'm with you on that. This makes me think that the book is in itself at a craft level, also a metaphor for abolition. We sit through hundreds of pages of uncomfortable. We witness violence. We witness death especially on black and brown bodies we are spectators and then at the end shit happens and we're not really sure what happens next and where we are in the abolition movement is we don't have to know what happens next in order to work towards abolition what does a world without prisons and policing look like i don't know but i want to find out and so i'm i'm left in this kind of unsettled space of what's What's next? It's got to be better than this. It has got to be better than that. Nothing is better than this book, but it's got to be better than the world in this book. It's got to be better than the world that we're in now. And I think that in that way, it's almost hopeful that, you know, hopefully some, it, hopefully it never takes something like this, like this world for us to reach abolition. But I think abolition is possible. And I think this this book is just another piece of evidence of like why we need it. And for that, wow, what a metaphor. Good un- unsettling ending, but yet, or, you know, ambiguous ending, but yet I'm going to wrap it all up and tie up all these bows today. If you haven't read this book and you made it through all the spoilers, you're welcome. And also, I'm sorry. And also just, oh, get this book. It is brilliant. It is so well done. Yeah. Five out of five stars for me. Easily. Same. You heard it here, folks. Three book experts giving it five stars. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes. And Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget. And it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature. Creature. Oh, oh, oh. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature.